Welcome to Ask the Dean. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the co-founder of MAPT. I'm joined every week by Rachel Grubbs, the other co-founder of MAPT, who has 20 years' experience in the pre-med and test prep world, and by Dr. Scott Wright, former executive director of TMDSAS and former director of admissions at UT Southwestern Medical School. Ask the Dean is a weekly Q&A we do live exclusively for our MAPT members, and this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. So first question here, I have a question regarding disability. I am a non-trad, 36 years old. I'm a veteran of the Iraq War and spent 10 years after that working as a firefighter slash paramedic. I was recently retired because of PTSD. I still want to serve people, but I am concerned that medical schools will think my PTSD symptoms will prevent me from completing the training. I watched Dr. Gray's podcast, which suggested that I only mention it if it is part of my story. But the thing is, I really want to serve the veterans, I'm assuming. Um, so mm. <clears throat> um, my uh, my assumption is that it continues on, that the PTSD is part of their story, that they want to serve veterans who are also struggling with PTSD. So, Yeah. So my concern, first of all, you know, there are applicable federal laws here which which dictate what can and can't be done with regard to uh, disability and, and discriminating against an applicant because of disability. However, that's you can request accommodations based on your disability and the school can decide whether it's willing to or can offer similar accommodations. In terms of this question, however, my, my, my concern is with regard to the phrase, I was recently retired because of PTSD. So that concerns me because if you can't work as a firefighter paramedic because of PTSD, then is that going to mean there's going to be problems because in, in, in any career, yeah. potentially. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I don't know how that would work out in terms yeah. of legally, but that concerns me a little bit that you had to sort of uh, leave your work as a paramedic, <clears throat> firefighter paramedic, because of PTSD. The stress of medical school is going to be intense. And uh, so, I mean, Ryan, you've been through the the stress of medical school. What what are your <laughs> thoughts here? I, I survived. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually put on my flight surgeon hat for a minute because as a flight surgeon, I was intimately familiar with the NFPA uh, guidelines, which are the the National Firefighter something or other. Um, it's it's the rules and regulations around who is fit to be a firefighter. And so I, I had the um, the privilege of taking care of firefighters at the bases that I worked at in the Air Force. And there were a couple times where I had to go to a firefighter and say, you can't do your job anymore. And whether that was temporarily, uh, I don't think I ever did it permanently for a firefighter. Um, but it's it's definitely a unique situation. And things that would be disqualifying for a firefighter would usually not conflict with being a physician. And so my assumption is, and, and this student can chime in if they want to, is 
that maybe they were retired not because they they couldn't handle the job but because their their physician probably said you 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 have PTSD and maybe your symptoms aren't the best and and the biggest question <clears throat> that it comes down to whether we were looking at pilots or firefighters is is there any risk of sudden incapacitation if if there's a sudden risk of incapacitation if you're flying a plane i don't want you flying a plane whether that's temporarily because you have kidney stones and you may be just distraught with pain at any given instance or there's something triggering in a firefighting situation and you want to run away and and hide which is what ptsd may do to some people Obviously, you can't do that if you're the, the, the person holding the hose and all of the rest of the team is, is relying on you. And so from a physician standpoint, disqualifying a firefighter is, is one thing, though being in those triggering situations as a firefighter, you're, you're very likely not going to be put in very similar triggering situations as a physician, right? Mostly working in a hospital setting, a clinical setting, maybe seeing a patient coming in with, with bad trauma, whether it's gunshot wound or motor vehicle accident, maybe those are some triggers as well. And so the, 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 the student will have to be okay with that. But again, there's, there's a little bit less of the risk of sudden incapacitation. Usually that's not gonna harm everyone else around you in that situation. And so there's a little bit more flexibility with that. So from a can you do your job standpoint, I'm a little bit less concerned about this. And obviously with therapy and, and working through a lot of this, hopefully that gets better. Um, and and I'll, I'll potentially a lot of PTSD, maybe it's the fear of the unknown as well. Whereas in a, in a firefighting situation, right, you, you don't know what's gonna happen around you. When you're in the hospital, a lot of it is is routine stuff. And, and yes, you have trauma coming in, but you kind of know the routine. It's not like something's gonna go go haywire uh, in the emergency department or something. So, are, are there potentially, um, Brian? Are there are there potentially fields of medicine that might be less or more appropriate for someone experiencing PTSD? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be individual to what the, those mm -hmm. triggers are. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think if, if it's a, um, someone who suffered years of abuse from a parent, uh, maybe being a psychiatrist, hearing other people's stories of abuse may not be the best for them, but I think that's going to be completely individual. Okay. So we, we got an update on that. Yeah, so yeah, the, the student says, I was evaluated by my psychologist who cleared me to pursue a career as a physician but won't allow me to work as a first responder. My symptoms uh, affect me more when I'm off-duty when I'm off-duty than when I'm when, maybe when I'm on-duty more than when I'm off-duty. Yeah, so again, just individual triggers for, for mm -hmm. each person. This, this particular student obviously triggered more by what they're seeing, the situations that they're in. Obviously, in a firefighting situ situation, in, a, in right. a first responder situation, there's lots of lights and lots of sounds and lots of chaos um, that, that aren't going to be there in more of a clinic setting. So, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, that's I, a fascinating question. I, I um, so going back to the original question, I, 
if it's part of the story, yeah, you have it. to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I would include it. it. It makes you you, and I think it, yeah. it's an interesting conversation for the interviewer to to really understand. Yeah, uh, understand you as yeah. a student. Agreed. I totally agree with that. There's a there's another question with regard to disability. I don't know if we can do that one uh, next. Yeah, that's good. Would you suggest disclosing stuttering as a disability on applications? Have you worked with any physicians who stutter? Interesting. We have a, been, yeah, a presidential I, nominee who stutters. <laughs> yeah. I've never, uh, in my experience, we, we never had anybody who's with, with a uh, stuttering issue. Uh, we, we've had a variety of other disabilities um, you know, stuttering is obviously going to come up in an interview, clearly. Yeah. Um, and I think to me, the, the, there's two sides to this. The, the stutterer can be, a, a, you know, seemingly a, could offer a great deal of empathy to patients who also have disabilities or who are struggling with uh, incapacitation, whether it's uh, physical or, or mental or, or whatever. But what's interesting to me about this is that the, the, the medical school, what the medical school is going to be concerned with, I think, with anything like this is how is the patient going to be able to understand the doctor? If the stuttering is so severe that the patient is going to have difficulty understanding what the doctor is saying, then that can be a problem. The same thing occurs when you have um, uh, medical school applicants who have very severe uh, foreign accents yep. where it makes it very difficult to understand what they're saying. Uh, and, uh, and so seemingly that would affect things. I don't know if I would, um, I think in terms of bringing it up in the application, again, I think this is relative to what is your story? What, you know, if, if your stuttering has become is a huge part of who you are and overcoming the stutter or dealing with it is a big part of why you want to go into medicine or why you want to help people or whatever, then you have to talk about it. I think um, if that's a big part of your story. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing we keep coming back to is what is your story? Right. Uh, if if having that stutter is part of why you want to be a physician, potentially tell it. If having a stutter is something that you had to overcome, then talk about that in a secondary where you're asked about that. If if right. having a stutter ha has shown you to be resilient for one reason yeah. or another, answer exactly. that in in the question that talks about resilience in those secondary essays. Yep. Guys and gals, everyone, if 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 you can, just always reiterate here. Dr. Wright and myself every day, every minute go, just tell my story. Stop yeah. asking if I should do this, if I should do that, if I can do this, if I can do that. Can I talk about this? Should I not talk about that? Tell your story. Yep. Exactly. It's really, and, and I hate to, <clears throat> I think some applicants are like, well, that sounds so simple, but it can't be so simple. <laughs> but it is so simple. It's really just a straightforward just tell your story. Now, I understand if an applicant is struggling to discover what their story is. Yeah. Uh, some applicants, they haven't really, you know, 
developed what that story really is well yet. Now that's a whole nother topic, but you got to tell your story. If, if you're connected with that story well enough, you got to tell it. <clears throat> exactly. Some good questions today. Yes, I like it. I've been a respiratory therapist for about nine years and have been contemplating quitting so I can focus on applying next cycle. MCAT, essays, interview prep, etc. I love my job, so I'm really on the fence. I also don't know if adcoms will frown on quitting this far out from the application cycle. Thoughts? Yeah, so <clears throat> my first thought here is um, I, I'm not sure what you're on the fence about. That concerns me a little bit that you say, I love my job, so I'm really on the fence. That, that concerns me. Uh, a little bit. If you're if you're on the fence about whether you want to go to medical school or keep your current career, that's a big red flag in my mind. Yeah, I, I think the context is around. I'm on the fence for quitting so that I can focus, not okay. quitting so that I could go to medical school. I think it's more okay. of a. Well, if, if that's the case, stop. then I'm yeah. If that's the case, then I'm less concerned. Yeah. But but so I would say know that generally admissions committees I don't think are going to be concerned about you quitting your job to prepare for going to medical school, particularly when that involves a significant amount of studying for the MCAT. Um, uh, you know, essays, interview prep, stuff like that. Less of a time time constraint. MCAT study can be a, a big time constraint, particularly depending on how long it's been since you've been in contact with some of that subject matter. Um, now, also, I want you to keep in mind, you don't really go into this in terms of the, the question that you've asked, but um, do not count on some of the classes that you took for your respiratory therapy degree, mm -hmm. counting for prerequisites. Uh, if you're counting on those, number one, if they're nine years, if they're nine years away, then you're going to have to retake some stuff if it's been that long. Um, and then also, you know, we get a lot of students who took, like for example, anatomy and physiology in, in their nursing program, or they took um, uh, a certain other courses in a, for example, a medical technology program where they took uh, microbiology often courses that are embedded in these allied health programs are not going to count toward the prerequisites. Yeah. So, so be careful about that uh, with regard to the, the coursework, but, but to, to more to the issue of the question, no, I don't think that that would be a big concern for medical schools uh, in general to, to say, yeah, you, I quit to prepare to go to medical school. Yeah, and, and there's always that I, I like to focus on a lot of that consistency as well. So just because you're quitting being a respiratory therapist doesn't mean you can't once a month maybe do a per diem shift or right. go do some hospice to, to continue to stay involved. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Good stuff. I have a question regarding a potential red flag. First semester freshman year, I had to transfer out the first few weeks of school before the ad drop period due to unforeseen extenuating circumstances. I transferred to a school closer to home. All went well on the transfer end grade-wise. 
uh, ECs, etc. through my circumstances. The transcript from the first school is completely blank because I left before the ad drop. Is this a red flag to have a blank transcript? How should I explain this on my application? Yeah, so that's a, this is this is interesting, right? Because TMDSAS yeah. is different than AMCAS. TMDSAS, the student wouldn't put those classes in their application, correct? Well, so if so, let me just get the question correct. She says the the he or she says that the transcript is blank. So there are yeah. no courses on the they, they withdrew before the ad drop period. So it's right. like so they there's didn't not going to try the class. Yeah. So there's not even going to be a class on the transcript at that point. Yep. So um, what I would say with with that is you are going to have to submit the blank transcript, but none of the courses will go into the, the course register. Uh, so I don't think it's, I, I you know, I, I think what you're going to have to do potentially is be, just be more specific with the, what you said in the question was the extenuating circumstances. Apparently they were significant enough that it, it caused you to leave school before you really even got started and go closer to home. You may need to go into that story. It may not be in your personal statement. It could be in a secondary or uh, an optional essay or, or something like that, where you kind of explain that a little bit um, with regard to kind of what that happened. And depending on what the situation was, it could act in your favor, you know, that you recovered and whatever it was, the extenuating circumstances that you overcame it and you, you know, yep. you know, went on ahead and, and have done great. So I don't see it as a big red flag. Yeah. And, and I wanted to clarify, I, I'm pretty sure, because you, you've said this a lot, for TMDSAS, they wouldn't put those grades in the transcript. For AMCAS, I'm pretty sure you have to. AMCAS is very clear. Like, you step foot in the classroom for a second, like, it has to go in your application. And I'm assuming they'll just all be Ws that, that first semester. Well, it depends on the – it, it, it really depends on the, the most schools if, if it was before census day. Uh, at the undergraduate institution, then it's not even going to show up on the transcript at all. Yeah, it's, and, it's and as if you never were saying. Yeah, so then, so then there's nothing to put in. Yeah, the, the, the transcript is going to when whether it's AMCAS or TMDSAS when they're validating the courses, it's not going to show any courses on the transcript. That's the only record they have to go by. Yeah, so there would be no courses to put in. Rachel has been the AMCAS instruction manual expert lately. Uh, from my recollection, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I don't know, Rachel, if you can clarify or do, do a little research while we answer another question. Yeah, what I remember off the top of my head is it says any credits attempted. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, like you said, Scott, this wouldn't even be a W. It would be. It's yeah, it's blank. a drop. It's a drop. Um, so yeah. And I don't know if that counts as a credit attempted or not. Um, no, it, 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 if it if it doesn't show up on the transcript, it's not going to count as a credit. Yeah, and that's always been my rule of thumb when students say, do I include this or not? The question is, do you somewhere have a post-secondary institution transcript that shows it? Yes. Um, well, and by somewhere, I mean USA, yeah. <laughs> which sometimes means that you took it elsewhere, but it's on your USA transcript. Right. Um, all right. Uh, let's right. go to the next one. We got a couple questions around uh, shadowing, so we can cluster those together. Doctor Wright, 
I'll, I'll call you Dr. Wright. Uh, UT Southwestern are starting a virtual physician shadowing program in October. Hey, no, no competition needed. Right. Uh, do you think TMDSAS schools will be willing to accept this experience as clinical shadowing? Yes. Yes, it's the medical school doing it, of course. Yeah, yeah. and I, you know, I get. It seems to me like maybe the question is broader. Yeah, if UTS, if UT Southwestern is doing it, will another school in Texas accept it? And I would say absolutely. I mean, you know, we've gone over this umpteen thousand times with with regard to COVID. I think that the medical schools in general are going to recognize, you know, this as a necessity at this point and uh, are going to accept that just like they would any other kind of virtual shadowing program. Exactly. Yeah. And, and tonight, as we're recording this, I'm, I'm doing the first e-shadowing session. And I spent the weekend working on automating certificate granting and making sure students are actually attending the session for a specific amount of time. And they're doing the quiz and passing the quiz and making sure all that information marries up to, to actually offer uh, credit for that. Yep. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, I'll just chime in quickly to say uh, it looks like from what I can see from the link that the UTESW program is actually has a small fee, uh, nominal, but it does have one, which makes sense. Those programs aren't, you know, it takes some effort to run. One benefit of the e-shadowing is that it's not going to cost anything. Um, but there are several virtual shadowing opportunities out there right now. And yep. I definitely think everybody should get some. Yep, I agree. Yeah, so I this this agree. specific one I'm interested in, it says UT Southwestern Virtual Observation Program. I, I remember when this program started, a, another student said this was a UT Southwestern program, and it's not really sanctioned by UT Southwestern. I think there's just affiliated physicians. So uh, I'm not sure if they're may, – maybe they're using the school to actually do those certificates, but um, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Eshadowing.com is free. No, I'm not charging you for certificates. Yeah. <laughs> I think I have an eShadowing banner. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah? Mm. There we go. It's tonight in about an hour and a half for those of you that are oh, watching live. <laughs> yeah. Eshadowing.com. Um, okay. Related, not so much about shadowing, but about clinical. Do you have any suggestions for gaining clinical experience right now during the pandemic? It seems a lot of opportunities have been canceled and frozen since COVID started. I think we get this question once a week, Scott. Yeah, we do. We should, I mean, we should have a video that just plays our answer. <laughs> we can take a break, run to the bathroom while, while it plays. I mean, yeah, you know, clinical, you know, shadowing, e-shadowing, uh, virtual shadowing is going is one thing. Clinical opportunities are going to be something com completely different. And I think that medical schools are going to recognize that there's severe limitations right now on this type of activity and not going to hold it against you. Yeah. Now, now having said that, if you're a senior applying or, or, and that you've, you know, been a pre-med on the pre-med track for, for three years or four years, and you're just now getting in the ball game in terms of clinical experience, then I think a medical school might look and say, well, what have you been doing for the past three years? Yep. You know, why, why haven't you taken any, any, any opportunities to do any of that before now? So I think a little bit, it depends on your story and kind of the, the, the progression of things. But generally speaking, I think that they're not going to hold it against you. Yeah, and that's, that's something we talk about a lot is what is, what is the big picture look like? 
Is, mm-hmm. And and we we talked about this at the very beginning of the pandemic, really not knowing how long it was going to last, but but that whole conversation, especially for those who were planning on applying this cycle at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people were freaking out because all of the shadowing and clinical experience that they had planned to do before their applications was all of a sudden canceled. And a lot of those conversations were around, well, what have you been doing now? Were you only relying on what you were going to do right before the application? And if so, you probably weren't ready to apply anyway. Right. That's right. That's right. Ooh, that's a hard one. But anyway, so so to maybe to get get a little bit more specific answering this question. So we've talked about uh, like cro- crisis hotlines, uh, like a text hotline where you can be at home and, right. and be on the computer answering people's right. um, text messages, phone calls, et cetera. Right. Uh, potentially virtual scribing is a thing. You can look at that. Potentially doing some sort of virtual kind of buddy for hospice or for nursing homes where you just have a Zoom conversation with mm-hmm. residents of nursing homes or, or those who are in hospice. So just get out there and, and be creative and don't worry if it's going to count if it's good enough. So. And, and, you know, back to the issue of, of keeping, of keeping uh, up with um, experiences, clinical experiences, shadowing, et cetera, over the long term. This is where MAPT really comes in handy. And it really, you know, you're going to be able to track yourself through those, through those experiences and where the feedback that MAPT is going to be give, giving you is going to say, wait a minute, you know, you, you're two years into this and you have no, no, no experience yet. So this is a red flag. And so they can, so th- this is one of the things that I think MAP will, will really help students with is giving, giving that sort of, uh, the, the, not, not only keeping track of those, but also keep uh, giving some feedback for you. Yes. All right. As an exchange student, nine credit hour per semester was full-time, so almost two years' worth of class comes under one year. According to the year classification, is that normal? Is that how I put in my courses? So, I... Hmm. So I, I'm always confused about this, and Rachel, again, being the, the AMCAS instruction manual expert, AMCAS provides the hour conversion if it's like zero to 35 then it's freshman if it's 35 whatever Mm -hmm. i think that is for more non-traditional you're not in the normal time frame system right i don't know if this would qualify as an exchange student i think you would just put it under freshman nine credits sophomore nine credits and whatever that well so i know the student who asked and i believe that she is also non-traditional so like a lot of international stuff and then some U.S. stuff. So I, I think in this case, the answer would be you're just going to have to count by credit hours. Yeah. Um, the way the AMCAS manual currently words it is if you have a fairly traditional education, then don't worry about a cutting off at a certain number. Just plan to change roughly every three quarters, roughly every two semesters. Right. It, then it says if you have non-traditional, if you have stops and starts, if you have transfers, if you have lots of community colleges, 
then you should designate by credit hour. But even there, it gives a little bit of a range. And the range is slightly different than the one um, TMDSAS. I didn't try to yeah. <laughs> make it a word. Um, yeah. <laughs> slightly different than the one TMDSAS gives. So it's like 0 to 30 or 35, and then 30 or 35 to 60 or 65. So there, there's still a little bit of designation, because we get a lot of questions around this that are like, oh no, I, two of my hours are going to be junior, not sophomore. And I'm like, no, it doesn't have to work like that. Like you have a little bit of student choice here. Like yes. if, if, and if you hit 67 hours at the end of your sophomore year, that's still your sophomore year. Yeah. yeah. And I, and, and I think students obsess about this a little bit more than they should. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I mean, this is a self-reported sort of, you know, it, I don't think that admissions committees, when you get down to, beyond the application service stuff when the admissions committees are looking at this stuff they're not concerned about it <laughs> you mean they're not sitting there going i don't think we can trust your in integrity you put right. two extra hours yeah as exactly a, as a sophomore not a junior where they should exactly. have been exactly. we just we just can't trust you no yeah. it's not gonna happen that way yeah. yeah i definitely appreciate why students worry but i guess yeah the the meta point here is if you go look at the AMCAS handbook, which is what Ryan is referring to, right? Like I just read that all the time. So I have a lot of it <laughs> kind of fresh in my head. Um, it says students have some designation choice here. Yeah. So they're yeah. saying it's not black and white, it's gray, yeah. and they're giving you some boundaries. So you yeah. are encouraged to make a judgment call. Yes. Yeah. And same and, with TMDSS. Yeah, and maybe Scott, it would help to to talk about that that mystery behind the scenes once a student clicks submit so i, I know from an amcast side of things I, I don't know their exact process but the people who are verifying the applications who are going line by line on your, against your transcript they have the flexibility to adjust things correct and and if there are too many things that they're adjusting they're just going to send it back to you with a note to fix it yourself yep um, and, and so it's not a, an all or none. It's not like you, you have to get 100% right or else they're going right. to reject it. They have some yeah. flexibility to adjust. Yeah. Is, and it, they, is it the same on TMDSAS? Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and both on AMCAS, ACOMAS, TMDSAS, they're all going to be the same in terms of the, that kind of flexibility that the verifiers, that the processors have. And these processors see hundreds and thousands of applications and they're used to what is a normal amount of sort of variation. Yep. And if it gets too, too much, then you're exactly right. They're going to pop it back to you and say, hey, you know, we need to fix some stuff here. There's too much. You need to go in and fix these things. Uh, otherwise, um, otherwise, if it's just a little here and there and stuff, they're going to fix that stuff and send it on to the, to the medical school. Correct. Yes. And even even getting back to the AMCAS handbook, they they even tell you in the handbook how many errors you can make before they're going to give up on you. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to attempt to quote that because, man, someone will hold me to it if I get it wrong. <laughs> but it doesn't matter if you're not applying this year. Go read the handbook. It's not going to yeah. change that dramatically year to year. And it, it'll help you get familiar. Like it, it's a lot. Yeah. So, well, and two, I would say a little bit of a plug for TMDSAS to say, now scale is obviously a lot different. AMCAS is a, is a huge operation with tens of thousands of applicants yeah. uh, every year. TMDSAS is a, TMD, TMDSAS is a 
Rachel, you have really ruined me for today. Yeah. Um, it is a much smaller operation, but I will say because it's a smaller operation, we can be much more uh, user friendly. We can be much more. And what you're going to find is that the processor is just going to pick up the phone and call you and say, hey, I, I'm not clear on this. I just want to cover this with you and make sure I'm understanding what your intent was and stuff like that. And you actually can call TMDSS and talk to a real person. They tell you at the very beginning when you submit your application, who is your applicant liaison? And if you have any questions, you email that applicant liaison or you call that applicant liaison and they will help you through the process and stuff. So I think it's a, it's a much more uh, touchy-feely way, which I think applicants often really appreciate. Nice. Yeah. So I, I, I I'm do really little... resisting the urge to make a snarky remark. I, I, Sounds I, like you're putting the students first there. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I want to do a little grammar lesson that that a, a young airman taught me when I was in the Air Force. The difference between initialisms and acronyms. Both are abbreviations. I think most people think acronyms are the only types of abbreviations. So we have TMDSAS is an initialism. So is FBI. Right. So is CIA. Right. right. We don't call the FBI FIBI. Uh, we call it FBI. That's an initialism. An acronym is a, an abbreviation that you use as a word, like NASA or SCUBA or LASER. So, so this kind of goes back to my feelings about preventative and nope. preventive. Yes. <laughs> preventative you know, had, is not a word. It is. I looked it up. Did you oh. say prophylactic? I, it is a word. I looked it up. It's it's a word based on usage. It's not the real word, though. It's preventive okay. medicine. Although that is how language evolves, Dr. Ryan Gray. It is. That's yeah. right. That's right. Okay, friends. So all of this came up because I have a horrible habit of trying to turn TMDSAS into an acronym when it's not. It's an initialism. Right. So I solemnly promise to you all to continue to work on enunciating all of the letters. <laughs> TMD, SAS, I can do it, and so can you. <laughs> <laughs> um, we actually are, I think, coming to the end here. I know we've got um, got the, the popcorn seems to pop. <laughs> pop. <laughs> Did you see oh what one God. of the questions was? It says, yeah, I like Tim Sauce. Tim Sauce. Tim Sauce. That's from Tim Sauce. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. Well, that's what Where I always wanted to do is I wanted to just eat the D because that's what Ohioans do, right? Like our particular or my particular kind of somewhere between Midwestern and Southern accent is when in doubt, just swallow your consonants. Yeah. You know? Um, so that's what I always tried to do with, t with TMDSAS was just eat the D and then I could make it an acronym <laughs> that I, I won't see. We got to stop. We're going to create bad habits in each other. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think we've actually come to the end today. We've, we've gone through our question list. Um, so I want to thank everyone. It's always wonderful to see you, Ryan. We missed you a lot last week. Yeah, we uh, did, Ryan. I was missed. Except for the I grammar lessons. We didn't miss that. <laughs> Sorry for trying to better everyone. <laughs> I get in trouble. I get in trouble all the time for trying to better my wife. <laughs> you 
just have to pick the time and place, you know, because <laughs> sometimes helpful is helpful and sometimes it's just officious and interfering. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still learning. She's Speaking still on uh, partners all over the world, right? <laughs> Yes. Okay, cool. Oh, it's too funny. Well, thank too you, funny. everyone. Yes, we thanks. We are uh, getting ready to record some Am I Readies, which are fun. Uh, we're not putting those out live, but those will be a podcast and video as well. Yep. And then if you haven't yet, sign up for eShadowing, eShadowing.com, where you don't have Very to pay good. $20 to get a certificate. Yep. <laughs> this is Dr. Gray again, closing out. I hope you learned something from our session today. If you haven't yet checked out Mapped, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. Track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.